Hey gang, it's Harold. Ananda Gupta came to San Diego to visit in September of 2019. We talked about a lot of things, including game design, gamer engagement profiles, and Imperial Struggle, which was pre-publication at the time. His discussion of player engagement profiles triggered a thought in my head that actually will be in the next C3i magazine discussing Wargamer engagement profiles. I love to talk to Ananda Gupta. He makes me think. Virtually every sentence out of his head makes me think about something. So I hope you enjoy this. Look forward to your feedback. Yeah, yeah. So um, so Imperial Struggle, I have the first thing is I haven't changed anything about Imperial Struggle since about July, I want to say, like early July. And we're, we're talking in late September here. So things have settled pretty, pretty firm. Um, I think Imperial Struggle, uh, so, so right now, right now the question is, is, is on the art and the graphic design. Um, there are a, a lot of player aids and components. I don't want that to scare people. It, you know, it's not a, uh, it's, it's not a, a massively complex game by any stretch, but uh, there's, there's a lot of opportunities uh, that I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't explore on the, uh, on the graphic design and iconography front to make the game really digestible and easy to read for people. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always concerned about, uh, you know, how does the physical play of the game feel? You know, is there a lot of neck stretching? Is there a lot of head turning? Is there a lot of squinting? And those are things. Um, those are things that you really want to try to iron out uh, as much as possible. And so let's go over those three things. That was interesting. Yeah. Uh, neck stretching. Neck stretching. Head turning. Yep. And then what was the third? Squinting. One? Squinting. So what? It, so neck stretching is. So neck stretching happens when you have you have a bunch of cards that have abilities on them, and I have to lean over the table to read what you can do to me. Right. Okay. That's um, you know that's bad. Right. Especially if they are also upside down because they're right side up for you. Um, so that's that's not great. Uh, and I mean, again, if you're playing a board game that has cards with abilities and stuff like that that stay in play, then some amount of this is uh, is unavoidable. Um, but you know, the classic like Magic: The Gathering phenomenon, where if you're playing at a pre-release and so you haven't seen all the content. Uh, and you know your opponent plays something, and then you're like, okay, let me just see that for a second. You have to you have to read the card, and then you have to put it back. Okay, let me hang on. Let me pro let me process that again, right? So that's you know that's neck stretching and head turning. Um, you know, if you have a lot of text on player aids that is next to the board, uh, and it is oriented in a way, uh, and the information is relevant to both players, then of course both players have to. And you can't see me because this is a podcast, but you know both players are doing a lot of this, right? They're turning their heads. Uh, you know, and, and having an angle. And, like, the more of that that is in your game, aside from just kind of being uh, a mastery curve that you don't want because people who have memorized what's on that stuff are going to have kind of an advantage, uh, you're also increasing the elbow, the elbow factor <laughs> and the drink spill factor and all that stuff. And then um, squinting. Squinting is just when you have uh, text on the board that has to be read by people, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so it's one thing if you're looking at your pieces or your cards or something, and those are easy to read. But like if you if there's something important on the board that you have to you have to kind of lean in on and 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 squint at, then um, those are you know that's that's not that's right. not optimal either. And again, like we're talking about historical 
uh, board games here. We're going to have some historical detail. We're going to have a bunch of that stuff. You can't eliminate it, really. Um, and um, attempts to eliminate it, you know, in the Eurogame space often lead to what I, you know, what, what some people call icon soup, where it's like, oh, great, we're going to get rid of all the text on the board, and, and as a result, you have this this board that is full of incomprehensible symbols, uh, <laughs> and hieroglyphics. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, <laughs> and so. And so those things can make your game kind of look look pretty impenetrable. And I think historical gamers have a much higher tolerance for this kind of thing than other people do. But still, you know, I want to ask ask that they have to do it as little as possible. That, that tolerance, though, also reduces the amount of innovation you see, right? Yeah, that's right. That's I mean, right. I think if, if we were less tolerant, and we were always complaining about it, you'd see more innovation. Or or at least or at least we would be, we would be less we would see more strong efforts to reduce unnecessary complexity. Right. Uh, right. Like if, if it's just like, well, you know, this mechanic requires the players consult a table. Oh, who cares? I'll just throw the table on a player in on the side. <laughs> right. Like it doesn't matter. Right. Um, like, and again, that's not to say that Imperial Struggle is light on these things. Like Imperial Struggle has tables. Like well, there, there are tables on there. <laughs> you sure. know, there's, um, uh, there's cards. Uh, there are cards that have abilities. There are tiles that have abilities, right? There's all the, all these things. Uh, and and players will definitely, uh, you know, hopefully uh, enjoy engaging with all that with, with the sort of puzzle that's in front of them. But right. um, but yeah, that's that's where it is right now. It's just trying to trying to get the most value for the player uh, in the visual design of all these components. Right. Um, and I think. Uh, uh, so uh, you know, at, at, at GMT week in the warehouse last fall, there was um, there was an early uh, or a, a a sort of m mostly ready board, and now the board I think is just about locked, with the exception of retrofitting a bunch of iconography into it that we've come up with as as Terry has done the tiles uh, and the and the counters. Um, you know, we've got to we've got to get the cards laid out, uh, make sure that the iconography works for them. Um, and then I think really, really, it's it's kind of a race to the finish after that, where uh, where we'll get the uh, the remaining player aids and uh, the rules and the playbook laid out. Um, all the content for that is done. You know, the extended example of play is written. Thank God. <laughs> uh, the the um, uh, all the historical background for all the cards and and and, and uh, um, war tiles is done. Uh, the rules I think are in a pretty good spot. Uh, in terms of of having them be as tight as possible, uh, they're they're going to have to get a little bigger as 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 images from the visual work gets gets put in, and then I have to write a little bit explaining explaining the, the exact uh, artistic uh, or you know the exact uh, information layout on those and, right. and so forth. But yeah, that's where we are. Um, so uh, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely don't think it's coming out in 2019, but um, but it'll definitely come out next year. Good, good, good. So you you mentioned the comprehensive example of play. Yes. And I don't think people that have never done one really understand what a painful process that is. Yes. I think it's critically important to can to helping people learn the game, right? I think it's it's a it's an important mechanism where people can go through step by step. It was very useful for me when I've played my first coin game. I remember that mm -hmm. and I know it was helpful. Yep. But at the same time, it, I, I, there are two issues. One is just cascading errors, right? That, that if you make a mistake in the earliest phase, 
the smallest of mistakes, it cascades. Right, right. And, and then that causes the player to distrust the rest of it. Yes, yes. Right. So, so getting it crisp like you want it, making sure that it's aligned with the concepts you want to teach, right? Because you yeah. could take it through a number of different paths depending on the cards. And then the other, the other misalignment that I, I see is that some people um, want it to be a strategy guide. Right. wanted to help them with strategy. Right. And and in my mind that's asking too much mm-hmm. of a comprehensive playthrough but would be curious about what you think about it. No, I agree. I, I think um I think that players like sometimes in order to illustrate a game concept somebody in your example is going to have to make a suboptimal play. And uh I think that the point of the example of play is for people to understand the rules better and to understand right. how the rules are applied. Uh, not to see an example of fully optimal play by by both sides. Um, I think that the way one can mitigate this uh, is is by just explaining the mentality and the reasoning why the players are making the plays optimal or not. And you can even tweak your imaginary players um, <laughs> for 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 the things that you are having them do. <laughs> right. But um, uh, but. Uh, and I think I think that kind of gets gets there, but of course that adds length, right? Like that adds words. So, so you you know, there's no <laughs> nothing is free. Um, right. I, I for Twilight Struggle, the example of play was flawed for a long time. It had a number of, of issues with it. Um, I, in the in the printing that uh, that went out with the collector's edition, uh, Mark Simonich, uh, you know, asked me to review it, and I went over it very 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 closely and came up with a, a big fix list and uh, as far as I know it's 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 solid now right. um, uh, certainly no one has no one has uh, pinged me about it right. <laughs> um, but uh, also Randy Pippis uh, did a an example of play that was based on a WBC uh, uh, either a final game or a semi-final game and there of course there you are going to get a level of play right that is very high <laughs> right absolutely <laughs> but it might not illustrate all the all, right. the, all the mechanics Right. The, um, the other challenge, um, the other challenge I see with the playthroughs is that they're just, they're done at the end of the design process and the design process is when everybody's at their most fatigued. Mm. Right. So, so, so you as a designer are at your most fatigued. The play testers for the most part are out of the process because they're fatigued and done, mm-hmm. right? And and it's an all yep. volunteer army, so it's not like we can compel anybody to do anything. So, yeah. So so you end up with the with the least collaboration, right? The least effective collaboration of any point in the process. Yeah. So I um I I I, I sympathize a lot with that. The solution I've adopted is to actually force myself to write examples of play uh, early. So. Because that has actually found that has actually caused me to find play patterns that I don't like, right? Um, and that certainly happened on Imperial Struggle, uh, where I would—I I think the first example of play I wrote was a year and a half ago, and I mean the game has changed so much since then. And it—I mean, you know, as you're doing it, it's such a slog because you're like, God, this is so throwaway, because you know the game is going to change. Right. But um, I think 
part of being a designer is understanding that a bunch of stuff you're going to do is throw away, right. um, but you're going to be learning from it. And so as I'm doing this example of play and I find myself, because, you know, kind of getting back to what you said earlier about, oh, are these, are the players playing optimally? And you're like, well, okay, so what, what would they do in this situation if they were making the optimal play? Oh, wow. They'd be doing something that's pretty toxic. Right. That's not great. <laughs> so I need to change something, you know? And right. I mean, you get that with, with face-to-face play testing, but, but writing examples, um, I th- I've found personally to be even more productive than solo playing a game. Yeah, that's um, a good idea. I haven't thought all. about it that way. And, um, and uh, you know, um, one uh, exercise that I use in my day job uh, on video games um, is to write, is to script mock tutorials, right? So if you do a mock tutorial of your game, um, that can actually expose a lot of fiddliness and rules issues uh, or information exposure issues. Right. You know, if, if, if you're writing a mock tutorial for your game and you're like, okay, and this is where we have to teach the player about this thing, and then you're like, but our game doesn't actually ever show that to the player, then you realize you've found a fairly substantial problem. Right. Uh, and you either need to cut that or, or show it. <laughs> right. Um, and so I think, I think that kind of exercise, while time-consuming and fatiguing, is is uh i think i think it is those things but it is also very productive and right. and i wouldn't uh yeah i i, I stand by it <laughs> i see that sort of benefit also when you write rules do you find that to be the case yeah so um it's really tempting to write rules and not write examples of the rules uh right so but i think if you and maybe for some rules, you don't have to write examples right away because you really have high confidence about how they're going to work. But if you're doing something weird, like if this is a weird rule, and you should always write the example as soon as you write the rule. And then once the example gets to be, you know, this giant paragraph, and you're like, oh, well, is this really pulling its weight? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it was, um, I was looking at um, Uwe Eichert um, Academy Games Conflict of Heroes. And they just came out with the third edition and had, had rewritten it. And the rules are actually about the same length as the second edition. Hmm. But half of the rules are examples. So it really engaged this example model. And, and, and with, with a lot of diagrams and, and pictures of, of the actual game state. Yeah, like Fantasy Flight is doing the two rule book model now, right? Where they have right. the, the, the play, you know, the, the basic rules and then the, the reference. Right. Um, and I know people have pretty, you know, widely differing opinions about that, but uh, at least they're trying something. Right. right? <laughs> well, it engages, you know, my issue's always been that, that there is a, there's a, there's an argument for a reference book, right? Where, where if there's a disagreement on a rule, you and I can both look into the rule book, regardless of our positions and come to the same conclusion. Right. And that's, I think that's coin rules in my mind, right? That's yeah. how Volko wrote his rules in coin. And then there's the easing the players into play. So, so they've, they've just engaged that, literally, right? Right, right. So how did you write the rules yeah. for uh, Imperial Struggle? Um, I mean, I, I blitzed them out. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, I think I, I got a draft of the rulebook going very early. I think most people do that these days. Um, so, I mean, I don't think I did anything particularly innovative about, about the process of writing the rules. Um, Mostly just trying to do examples as early as possible and not being afraid to redo the examples when the rules change right. um, and and putting in you know putting in a lot of graphics uh, 
no, I mean terrible, terrible graphics. <laughs> uh, but but at least placeholder for for where things will need to, need to be visually explained. Right. Um. So yeah. Uh. So so. But you were talking about like the systems in Imperial Struggle. Um. So. Imperial Struggle. Like I said, it's it's basically been system locked since early July. Um. We've had a lot of good playtest games. Uh, it's led to a lot of polish on uh, on the cards and how they work together. Um, I think I'm very happy with where the game is now, both from a sort of flow point of view and from a from a uh, driving to a conclusion point of view. That is, the game ends when it should end, uh, or it it ends imminently when it should end imminently. Um, and, uh, but you can still make big comebacks. Uh, I think players, you know, this has come up a lot, but, you know, since uh, following Twilight Struggle, it's very different from Twilight Struggle. It's still, a, you know, it's a two-player game about an epic struggle uh, over a long period of time. But it has no dice. Um, it has a much smaller event deck. Uh, it has, uh, you know, it has the ministry cards, which are these cards that you use to sort of give yourself some abilities at the beginning of each era that will kind of define how you're going to approach that era. Uh, and, <clears throat> and of course, um, it has a system that simulates four wars <laughs> uh, and, 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 and has those be gameplay, um, which is which I think I've said before was certainly the hardest part of designing a game was how do you how do you design a game about a hundred years of history where the two opposing powers fought each other in the field four times uh, without making the player learn two or five different games uh, right. <laughs> that was that was the challenge that was right. the biggest challenge for sure when you think of the game do you think of it as a series of five different systems. Or, or do you think of it as an integrated complex machine? I definitely don't think of it as five systems. Um, I think of it as the I, the, the main the main fantasy that that Imperial Struggle is trying to deliver is is the is the thunderclap fantasy, right? The 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 Anus uh, Mirabilis, right? So, can you put together this massive power move that is going to sort of establish your, your, your supremacy. Um, and for that reason, right, like the game, you know, the game is, uh, the game is six turns uh, with four wars and, you know, four wars interspersed. But it's a, aside from the first couple of turns, it's a threat to end at any time, right? Like it could, it can, it can go, it can go horribly sideways for someone at any given time. And, um, and I think that's historically appropriate. I think it's plausible, right? I mean, if you look, if you read the history of what happened at Kiberon Bay, right, one snap decision <laughs> by by Admiral Hawk, <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, he, he he is just going to um, he 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 made the decision to follow in, and and that 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 decision is so far below the scope of decision making in you know that that you are in an imperial struggle. Uh, but you can kind of set yourself up to, 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 to potentially have that type of outcome. And if you do, then you're going to be, uh, you're going to be, you're going to be, uh, what's, I mean, uh, 
You're going um, to have an advantage. You're going to be in the driver's seat, right? Yeah. I was trying to I was trying to go for an 18th century <laughs> metaphor, but like, yeah, you're going to you're going to be in the driver's seat, right? right. Un- until un- until your opponent figures out something or, you know, is un- unable to uncork something on you. Um Right, it's definitely not the same crisis management mentality that you have in Twilight Struggle, where you're looking at your cards and going, "Oh God, how am I going to navigate this 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 terrible soup that right. I have in front of me?" And your opponent is thinking the same thing, but you don't know that. Um, and so, and so the systems the systems in Imperial Struggle, uh, you know, you have you have three types of action points. Um, uh, the, the you don't have you don't have cards that have ops and events on them. Right, you have these tiles that have that have the ops on them, uh, which which again are called action points, and they they come in three types: economic, military, and diplomatic. And uh, you have events in your hand that are concealed from your opponent. And on each of your action rounds, you pick one of the tiles, and if you're allowed to, you you merge it with one of your events, and so you're kind of making your own strategy card. And then you execute it, and and you you, you and your opponent take turns doing that. Um, it you know that system came out of that system came out of my desire to do a card driven game where players were playing from the same deck right they were playing together in that way right uh no 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 slur on paths of glory or any of the split deck games but uh, i wanted i wanted it to be a combined deck um that there also had to be uh, so given that it's a shared deck, I then also wanted it not to feel like you were just drawing worse cards than your opponent. And uh, if you're drawing worse cards because the events and ops together are just lower, then that's not great. Traditional CDG design has the higher the ops, the better the event, so that there's a meaningful trade-off between the two. Um, and so that means if you draw a handful of fours and I draw a handful of twos, then... Uh, I'm just looking at this turn going well. I guess uh, you know. I guess I'm just I'm treading water this turn, right? Or I'm you know I'm trying not to lose this turn. Um, and I didn't want that. Uh, obviously, Twilight Struggle addresses that somewhat with the opponent triggering events. Uh, uh, that 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 one rule has of course had such a huge effect on the game on Twilight Struggle the game as well as I think a lot of games that have come after it. Uh, but then the question was, how do you solve this? Like, how do you, how does one have a card game where you're drawing the cards randomly from a shared deck, and the cards are not, uh, but there's no, there's no possibility, or there's much reduced possibility of just a really asymmetric draw in terms of overall power. And where I landed was severing the ops from the events and letting the players mix and match them. And that's... Uh, that's turned out pretty well in playtest. I hope players like it. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I played it and loved it. So uh, oh, it's been a while. That, that was yeah. early. That was early playtesting, but uh, we had a great time with it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I mean, it's come a long way since you played. Yes, it's come a long way. Um, I've simplified a bunch of things. Uh, I've balanced a bunch of things, but the game is still fundamentally right. What it is, um, the, the game is still fundamentally the game you played. Right. Um, no, and I, I think we all. We, we recognize that the French and British were at odds for over a hundred years. So it, it would, we, I think this, 
for the first time puts that conflict nicely on the table where you can think of it from the from the broadest perspectives. Yeah, there are a lot of Seven Years' War games, and there are a lot of American Revolution games. There aren't quite as many Spanish Succession or Austrian Succession games, although right. they're they're starting to come. I have you know, there's the No Peace Without Spain, mm-hmm. and then the Austrian Succession one that Compass is doing. Um, uh, and I'm I haven't played either of those two, but I, I want to. Right. Um, and uh, but I wanted I wanted something that I wanted something that covers this sort of epic sweep right uh, and multiple wars right and also and also you know included war as a topic without the entire game being about war and therefore hopefully uh, inviting some more uh, right. a, a wider audience um, of course, I'm you know the audience I'm I'm most emotionally concerned with is are the are French and British players. <laughs> I hope I hope both of them like it. If they both like it, then then I will feel a deep sense of accomplishment. Right, right. <laughs> that will be interesting. Um, but but you're right. You know the the uh, the American Revolution is is interesting. I love it for obvious, uh, and I've shown it. But but the the challenge is that you don't really understand the American Revolution unless you understand the grand context of the conflict. Right, right. It was a theater. <laughs> right, right. It was, it and, was and one frankly, theater. and not very, and not a very important theater. Right, exactly. Right. Um, you know, no one understood the the ultimate consequences and ramifications of right. of that theater. But, uh, but yeah, the Caribbean. Both. I mean, I think both Britain and France saw the Caribbean as much more important. Yes. Uh, relative. Certainly to, more economically valuable. Oh yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, uh, Schwazel's remark from the Seven Years' War, not the Revolution, about a few acres of snow is exactly yeah. a reflection of that. Right. <laughs> the, That's it. Uh, yes. uh, uh, Trading, uh, I think it was Guadalupe, uh, for uh, you know, for a few acres of snow. snow. (laughs) (laughs) I will not. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, uh, And I think um, uh, you can voice over a few acres of snow as Canada there. (laughs) 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 Um, uh, I I think epic. You know that epic feel is something that. That in, like d- dynamics in games that interest me these days are are capturing that epic feel in an accessible way that's also sort of historically nuanced and I think this is um, you know this is one of the things this is one of the things where I'm I'm looking for other you know I'm looking at other ideas uh, for my next board game project after Imperial Struggle whenever they, that may be I certainly won't be starting on it at all until until Imperial Struggle is out of my hands right uh, but uh, you know one idea. Oh, and an, I mean, another another dynamic I'm interested in is more nuanced uh, free-for-all games, right? So uh, I work at Riot. Uh, Riot does League of Legends. League of Legends this year released a new game mode called Teamfight Tactics. Teamfight Tactics uh, has been has been uh, uh, pretty successful with players. Uh, I think uh, a different audience has come to come 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 in. Uh, Teamfight Tactics is is a much less mechanically demanding scenario um, where you are assembling a team of champions uh, in sort of the spirit of the auto chess uh, genre that has, uh, or the auto chess play pattern that has been, uh, been becoming popular over the last year. And you're assembling, you're assembling a team of champions and you know, you're upgrading them, right? You, you know, collecting multiple copies of one champion will eventually fuse them into a better version of that champion. And you can give them items, and you're also trying to cl- collect sets, right? So it's got some set collecting in there, where if you, you know, if you collect all the nobles, then they get a, you know, you collect three nobles, they get a small bonus. You know, you get you collect six nobles, they get the huge noble bonus. Um, but you know, the same thing with, uh, you know, 
with like shapeshifters. Um, and then there, uh, anyway, there's, there's a lot of nuance and, and, and interest in, in that. And, but one of the things is that it's an eight player free for all game. And as an eight player free for all game, you are looking at potentially seeing a lot of toxic play patterns uh, that you see in free-for-all games like ganging up and implicit win trading and all sorts of things like that. And the way Teamfight Tactics addresses this is simply, you know, anathema in games sometimes, but it's deny agency to the player, right? So uh, you don't control who you fight, right? You, you have a round where you're planning out your team and you're buying new champions and selling others and, and trying to get the best lineup you can. And then... Only then does the game teleport you into an arena with someone else and you don't know who that's going to be and you just have to fight whoever the game feeds you. And so as a result, you can't gang up on the same player. Uh, you, can't, you can't engage in the sort of metagaming uh, that I think ruins a lot of uh, free-for-all games. Um, and I think board games should be thinking about stuff like this, right? Um, you know, uh, there have been board games that do this, like... Uh, uh, one of my favorite examples is Martin Wallace's Struggle of Empires, where there's always two alliances, the li you know the light and the dark alliance, um, and you the players bid to see who's going to be in which alliance. But every bid proposal has to be someone on one side and someone on the other. And so what you're trying to do in that game is is you're trying to get the people who are in best position to attack you and take your stuff on your side so they can't, <laughs> uh, and you're trying to. Uh, you're trying to get the people who you want to, whose stuff you want to take, opposite you. But of course, they are looking at the same situation and going, "No, no, no! I think we're going to be friends this time." And who's who's going to pay more to have to have their favored target available, <laughs> right? Is, is is what happens in that game. And I think that I mean, it's ingenious. It's it's a pretty hardcore mechanic, but it's it's ingenious. And um, and so I've been thinking about board game designs that might leverage some of these uh, free, you know, some of this uh, this kind of thing. Um, you know, I've been thinking about a Pax Britannica design, uh, uh, or you know, sort of Pax Britannica homage design, uh, where uh, it, you know it doesn't it, it feels less like doing your taxes, um, but also uh, is not purely about the European powers, you know, going after other people, you know, taking other people's uh, t taking the territory of people who are not really represented in the game very much. Um, I, I've even been thinking about a Pax Britannica game where the where all the European powers are are bots, and the players only play indigenous peoples. <laughs> Interesting. And uh, and it would be a global game, right? Uh, so you know, I, I don't know. Like there, there's one like that. I'm thinking about a game where uh, I'm thinking about a game idea where uh, it's four players, asterisk, and each player is one of the uh, branches of the U.S. military. <laughs> Um, and so you are playing through historical, you know, it's, it's, it's from, from the birth of the, of the Republic till now, and with lots of weird alternate history conflicts that each of the branches can participate in. Right. And, uh, and you know, can you, can you achieve the greatest glory for, for your favorite branch of the, you know, right. your favorite service branch? And, um, uh, but of course, in, in a game like that, having a single winner is a little anathema to the spirit, and so... Right. What would that look like, right? What would a, what would a game where everyone is part of the U.S. military, <laughs> but and you want you want to you want to be the, the the most prestigious branch, but you also want everyone else to succeed in a, in a pretty important way, right? Um, and so, <laughs> right? And so, I think I, I think a game like that has you know might might be uh, might be an example 
of the of the play patterns that I'm talking about, and might have some interest for the historical crowd. Right. It's interesting. You know, we've we've talked about uh, the War of 1812 yep. as a four-player game. And so how would you split that up if you were limited to limit yourself to four factions? And remember, my contention is there are probably 20 or 50 factions. Mm-hmm. Right. But if we were going to limit ourselves to four, you'd have, first of all, you'd have the Native Americans, yeah. right, uh, in, in the defense of... Uh, a few acres of snow. Yes. And and then you'd have the British, which are fundamentally the Canadians and, and the, the the provincial government. Yep. And then you'd have the US, but but I would argue that it's two factions, right? It's it's the it's the uh, Republican aggressive war making factions trying to annex Canada or right, at least right. push them to an agreement. And then you'd have the northern colonies. Uh, which during in, in the lead up to 1812 wanted to trade with the British, right? And 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 so they have different goals, but but similar. It, it's uh, I, I love the f- I love it when you can get players um, factions in together that are so similar and share goals, but also um, have very different sets of sub goals. Yeah, yeah. I think um, yes. So. Faction identity and, and asymmetry, especially you know when they're sort of historically justified, is is is, is wonderful. I I'm reminded of an older game, a uh, game I kickstarted a long time ago called uh, called and I, sorry I backed as a as a Kickstarter participant. Right. I, I wasn't the the creator. Um, called Divided Republic, which was about pre you know the pre Civil War era, and while I admire tremendously what the designer was going for there. The result was a, a fairly balanced game in a situation where balance was not actually plausible. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, I know you get some of the same criticism for liberty, and liberty or death with respect to the Native American faction. Right. And they're, you know, should they have a 25% chance to win the American Revolution? Does that make any sense? Right. I'm not an expert. It seems implausible to me, but I certainly would rather play that game, <laughs> right. Right. Um, where where I where where that where that outcome is contextualized, right, right. and makes and, and and makes sense. Well, and as, um, as we were discussing over lunch, what what is what does winning actually even mean, right? I mean, for the native, for the native faction in Liberty or Death, it was going to be bad for them in the long term, no matter what, right? Yep. No matter what, regardless yep. of French or British intentions over the long term. And that was true of the Seven Years' War, and it was true of the American Revolution. But the, the reality is that um, on a relative basis, they could have fended, right? They, they could have had an outcome. And, and frankly, usually that outcome occurs when the other factions ignore them. Right, right. And, right. and allow them to do their thing. Uh, because, uh, you know, and, and, and to me, once again, it drives that narrative that the Patriots had a war with their, their former British caretakers, but they also had a frontier war going at the same time. Right. And so if a player ignores the frontier war, they're going to lose the game. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, it, it, it is, um, this, this winning thing is an artificial construct. It's odd. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think, I think factions in the way you just described can be really useful for exposing the unknown complexity of wars. Right. And you know, where, where, what you just described about, oh, there's, there's an uprising going on, but there's also a frontier war going on. And most people don't know about the latter one or don't, don't, attach much weight to it but in fact it was a big concern for the players at the time and isn't that what you want right in your game right, right? you want you know it's right it's the same reason why 
why Mark Herman made Washington so much easier to take and for the people right. than it was historically is because he wanted he wanted the union player to be absolutely focused worried about it uh, and obsessed <laughs> with the defense and holding of Washington um, right. uh, and you know allowing them to use hindsight to to e to evade that that right. uh, that that stress uh, would not be providing a good historical experience um, with winning I think. Yeah. So th this is yeah. This is we we did talk about this about uh, a little bit over lunch, but but I I I often wonder why historical games seem to insist just multiplayer games seems to insist on having a single winner. When I'm coaching, you know, when I've when I've taught a game like Fire in the Lake in the past, you know, I have I have said this is a four player game, but you know, Viet Cong, you get a moral victory if the NBA win and vice versa. Right now. Leaving aside the complexity of that discussion, which I know Mark Herman has engaged in and will do so with much greater erudition than I could, um, you know, I think uh, that's both kind of reassuring to the participants who are like, okay, well, even if I don't win, then there's somebody else who can make me kind of pseudo win. Um, so, I mean, obviously people care about winning, but I think they care about winning to the extent the game encourages them to, to some, you know, and, and I think... If we, if we want to be interesting historical game designers and we want to portray conflicts holistically, right? So, like, I'm not saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't have a winner in a game about Case Blue, right? <laughs> right, like, or a game about Stalingrad. Like, right, right. <laughs> right, like, either you... Combat you, commander. Right, right. Either you got there or you didn't, right? You got the, you got the hill <laughs> or you right, didn't. Right. You know, you got the city or you didn't, right? Like, those... those uh, fine, right? I'm not, I'm not saying <laughs> what I'm talking about. I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about, like, really unambiguous two-player games like that. Um... I'm talking more about the types of games that we're talking about, which is, you know, how many, the question of how many sides there were is a matter of historical dispute, <laughs> right? <laughs> the question of, of uh, which sides would have considered themselves victorious in, under any given set of circumstances, those are things we can lean into in games that are about, uh, that are about those sort of holistic conflicts. And while I enjoy playing games, uh, you know, like I pre-ordered... Um, the new uh, No Retreat Battles from GMT. Uh, very excited about that one. Nice bite-sized two-player slugfest. Um, that looks great. Uh, the, the, but I will probably not design one of those, right? Um, uh, I, I, I want, and of course, I mean, two-player games, you know, I like two-player games because of, of, of their, of at least the clarity of the sort of metagame, right? But if if we're talking about sort of holistic conflicts, um, I think we can, we, there's, there's just a lot of, un, there's a lot of unplowed ground there. There's a lot of unplowed ground. There was a game I played a long time ago called La Revolution Française, which was about predictably the French Revolution, and it was a six player game. Uh, and you had three reactionary and three revolutionary factions, and they all were different, and they all had different, they had, a, they had pretty, pretty interesting player actions that were available. Uh, the game was very hard to play, but it was, and the victory conditions were very challenging to kind of grok. Uh, but that's the kind of game where, you know, was it really necessary for there to be a single winner? Uh, I don't think, I don't think so, right? I, I think, uh, you know, may, maybe there are conditions where the number of winners varies. Um, over lunch, we talked about New Angeles from Fantasy Flight, where the number of possible winners is actually pseudo-random um, because 
at the beginning everybody secretly draws a card that is associated with one of the other players and that's the only player you have to beat in order to win and that means that depending on the the draw <laughs> there could be uh there could be two winner in a four player game there could be two winners there could be three winners um you know etc so i think um uh yeah i th i think i think there's a lot of ground there uh to look at multiple winner systems that will increase accessibility of multiplayer historical games um quite a lot because the fear of of losing right and of, of spending a lot of time in a game so so this discussion came up at lunch we had lunch with with josh star from that who's working on um who's working on it i think soon it'll be a kickstarter um, Josh isn't mic'd up, but I'll look at him. And he's working on a Kickstarter for an 18xx game, and we talked a little bit about <clears throat> the impact of, um, and I hate to even say it, but the impact of king making right. uh, within the context of a game. And and um, while I I generally discard those and 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 am frustrated with the uh, this king making discussion, um, the point that in a long game that has really sharp edges king-making has a bigger, more painful impact. Uh, and, and so you're, you're, I think that's where we started this discussion of, of why do you have to have one winner? What does winning mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, king-making... King so king-making is one of those things where we don't like it in our games, but if you say, oh, but, but it's everywhere in history, right? I mean, that's where the term comes from, is, histor right. is history. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, and, so, and so I think... I think if you're talking about a game that is going to feel immersive uh, but is not going to have king-making, um, the complex, you know, the issue, the issue of a game, a game is simply demanding something that history doesn't provide, which is an, an obvious winner, right? But there are very rarely obvious winners in, in real history over any, any long period. Time. Yeah. And, I mean, you were talking about how uh, at the end of the American Revolution – did the Americans, did the Continentals think they had won? <laughs> right. And the answer was, well, maybe. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Maybe we won. <laughs> right. Uh, we, no. cer we certainly achieved some of the things we said we wanted to achieve. <laughs> right. So, right. So I guess so. But, um, but that's, yeah, that's, that's, not, that's not how history works. And, and I think people who, people who criticize games for kingmaking, they're not wrong to, to, to say they don't enjoy that, right? Because I think they're sensing that the winner of the game, th it's based in the intuition that whoever plays the game best should win and, uh, it, or sort of, uh, is sort of entitled to the win. And um, king-making undermines that because you, you might have played the best, but the efforts of two people who didn't play the best can cost you the win. And, like, I, th I, I think that that, you know, that's a... That, that intuition is at the core of why people play games, so I, th I don't think we should dismiss it. But if we also want to have like a long-term, you know, if we want to have a long game that has meaningful player interaction in it, and uh, then we're going to we're going to run into this problem, and uh, we're we're going to run into this problem, and so you're you're just you're not going to. Um, Unless unless designers come up with things that go closer to what history, the sort of more the more historical, uh, uh, I don't want to say narrative, like 
dynamic, right? The the, the more historical dynamic, then um, then yeah, you're you're always going to have an accessibility problem with with games that are long, right? And have player interaction and have a single winner, right? <laughs> right, and people will leave the game angry from time to time, and yeah. some subset of that group won't want to come back, and yeah, that's not good for any of it. Like I don't th I don't think it's a coincidence that the most accessible games that are very long session are are not board games they're tabletop rpgs right those and I, I and it's not a coincidence that that those games don't have winners <laughs> right <laughs> right um or or they have they have a much more nuanced understanding of what it is to win and yeah. and and what and and what the social contract of the table is right yeah i think i think that's the case right that we sit around and play a role playing game we have a different set of views over what winning is yeah and um and and what collaboration is too right yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, um, I mean, all games. When you're sitting down at a table to play a game with people, you are, whether you would, you're always entering into a social contract. And the best gaming experiences happen when everybody, implicitly or explicitly, usually implicitly, has the same social contract in their head, right? But if someone is coming to the table in a game that has really sharp gameplay, uh, and there is a social contract at the table that people don't take maximum advantage of the sharpness of that gameplay, but that person does, then people are going to get upset. And are they wrong to get upset? No. Like you can't, you can't just say, Oh, well, we should have laid out how this game is going to work. You know, met, you know, from a, uh, we, we, you know, we should have specified the social contract when we started. Like that's, that's not how people work. That's not how social, social gaming works. And frankly, that would also cause, accessibility issues, right? Like, the more explicit you are about these terms, the more likely somebody is to be like, well, you know, maybe I'm just not going to play, right? right. And, uh, you know, the role playing, the tabletop role playing community has, has actually done a fair amount of analysis about this. And they, they talk about dysfunctional uh, role playing games. Uh, and by games, I mean like groups, rather. Um, and, and, and the source of those dysfunction. And one of those is, dis is, is misalignment about what social contract is, right? Uh, have you ever heard of the uh, uh, of DNS? Um, so DNS is a is a is a framework that is uh, that 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 characterizes different role playing groups. Or sorry, GNS, GNS, not DNS. Have you ever heard of GNS? I have not. Yeah. Okay. So um, it stands for gaming or gamist, narrativist, and simulationist. All right. So if you're sitting down to play Dungeons and Dragons with someone or uh, with a group, and it's a gamist group. What that group, what that group is going for, what the, you know, gamists, what gamists are expecting from a role-playing uh, session, is they're expecting uh, challenges that are kind of tuned to their capabilities and that are interesting to solve, um, and that the rules are there to kind of help provide and add color to these challenges, right? Um, but they can fail, right? Um, because otherwise, it's not really a challenge. A narrativist game is invested in the movement of the storyline that is being told. And so in a narrativist game, you will typically see rules and systems and player modifications to those rules and systems that prioritize the advancing of the storyline, right? So it's really common. And sometimes, you know, you will see game systems like Dungeon World that are very uh, geared to this. Um, like in Dungeon World one of the explicit outcomes of, of making a skill test is that 
is that you fail, but in an interesting way, right? Or you fail in a way that advances the story, right? Um, whereas in a simulationist campaign or in a simulationist rule set, the idea there is to model the behavior of an imagined world, right? Regardless of what happens to the players, <laughs> right? And so, for example, I mean, if if you're in a dungeon and you you spring a pit trap and the party falls into a pit, in a simulationist campaign, that could just be the end. It might very well be the end. In a gamist campaign, it might also be the end, but there's an, a certain level of assurance that the players had the ability to avoid the trap, right? Or had the ability to play around the trap in some way. And the players can look at the situation and go, oh, well, I guess, uh, you know, clearly the objective in this challenge is past that trap, so we must have had a way to get through it, right? Whereas in a simulationist campaign, I mean, maybe, <laughs> right? right. Maybe you can get to that cool, cool objective on the other side of the pit trap, but maybe you just have the wrong abilities, in which case, yeah, tough. Yeah, right? we'll play later. Whereas in a narrativist campaign, falling into the pit trap advances the story in some way. You are captured, right? And now you've right. actually gotten closer to the goal in some way, but now you have a different set of advantages and disadvantages than you thought you did when you came in, right? Um, and so, and so those are, that's the, those are the, that is a framework for understanding uh, how the social contract around a game, a, a role-playing game can work. And people who espouse this framework argue that most dysfunctional groups come from people not sharing an understanding of what type of game they're playing, right? right. It's when you have your simulationist DM and your gamist players that right. people get upset, right? right? Or, um, you know, you have your narrativist DM and your simulationist players, right? right? Um, and, and that's, I played a game yesterday, and that's exactly what we've got. We've got the narrative GM, and we've got the gamist players. Right, right. Now, it's been okay. Yeah, it, it's not like it's a recipe for disaster right. necessarily. But there's a lot of mechanical questions from the players to the GM. Yeah, like, like once, you, once you understand this framework and you look at your own game, your tabletop game experiences through it and look at like points of tension or where does your game chug, where does your game slow down, once you have this framework and you look at it through this lens, it will it will it comes into focus really clearly, right. right? Like, if the players are always asking about exactly what their abilities can do because they're concerned about which one they ought to pick, they're gamists, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, right. Uh, and if the GM is like just pick an ability, right, right, then uh, then the GM is probably not a gamist, right, right, <laughs> right, right. Um, and. Uh, yeah, it, it's 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 very yeah. It's it, typically the divide happens between the GM and the players, but it can happen other ways too. And I think board games have this have this have have a species of this. Not 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 the GNS framework, but like I said, if somebody's coming to the table because he's he's playing a board game. Well, actually, okay. So now I'm now I'm reminded of the framework that was in. Um, oh gosh, this was in the General Magazine years and years ago. This was the competitor, socializer, dreamer framework. So this was one of my favorite general articles of all time. Um, and it divided war gamers into competitors, socializers, and dreamers, right? And competitors are what you would expect, right? They are there to win. They're there to understand the systems and to understand the optimal plays. Uh, they're the ones who uh, will master a game. They will win tournaments. And then they will move on uh, 
to master other games. Right. But they will always they will always enjoy playing a game that they have mastered. Right. So, you know, these are the guys who will sit and play Tobruk. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. right. You, you know, a game that is very. I don't dated. think that's funny because I love Tobruk. But it's. I mean, <laughs> it's easy, <laughs> but yeah, it's a very dated game. Right. 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 But oh, and at the time it was unimaginative, but highly mechanical. Right. Right, and so you're there just to kind of understand the, the right moves, right? Socializers are in the historical, you know, they play games because uh, for the social experience, right? They are less, less for the competitive. Um, and I think socializers, I think, I think the, this framework explains the growth of board gaming in that historical war games are not a particularly social experience most of the time, but when Euro games came along... <laughs> Those are a very social experience, right. much more so, and and so socializers who didn't really have as many alternatives uh, in the American game market suddenly had a lot of stuff to play, which right. I think they I, I think and, and it also moved war games into that space, yeah. right? So I mean, there I, I think about the coin series, but a whole bunch of multiplayer um, games that allowed people to have social experiences. I think I, th- I I agree to a point with that. I think um, I I think the the way you can tell if your group is dominated by socializers is if they always want to play something new every week, right? <laughs> right? Because the competitors the competitors want to play things that to, over to over. you know over and over to to master them, and the socializers they they want to play like the the new thing right. because they want to get together with everyone and it's fun to experience a new thing with other people, right? Right? And to see other people's reactions right. to it, right? And then the dreamers are there. These are the these are the reenactors, right? These are people who wear costumes. These are the. I mean, th- that's an extreme, but like, they are there to 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 be lost, right? Right. They want to lose themselves in, in the experience. Theme. Yeah, right. they're they're they they want to they play historical games because they are envisioning themselves on the battlefield. Right. They are envisioning themselves in the tent or in the tank, right. making the call. Right. And they right. are they want to they th- these are the people who will read books. They, they, when they get invo- getting involved with a game for them is not right. about just the game; it's about the books and the history and right. the podcasts and everything. And uh, and so yeah, they yeah theme like to say they love the theme, they engage with all of that stuff. And winning the game to them is not that important right. because they're telling a cool story in their heads, which might involve them losing. Right. Right. And right. And, and that can be a fun story. Right. Right. Um, would, now, now that's how I describe Mark Herman. So, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't take him. I've never seen him wear a uniform of of any faction that he's playing, but but I love to play games with the guy because he is into it. He is deep into the to the history and the theme, and he talks about it and he tells stories, and he uh, he doesn't point to that counter or that space. It's it's that city and it's that unit and there's and, it, and a little bit of history he shares with it or a leader or something and, yeah and, and it's it's a but it's a joy to play with him because he is he is into it on the other hand also highly competitive right sure so so it's not it's it's not that everything is one or the other of these three dimensions is probably we probably fall out and in, inside of a triangle oh, amongst yeah. these yeah. right yeah and it might very well depend on your mood right as well you right. know um, I think. Uh, you know, like like if you're playing a lot of uh, vassal games or play by email games, right? Those are sort of limited in their social experience, but boy, they can deliver on the other two, and maybe yes. that's what you want, you know? Yes. Um, yeah, I I do get a very strong dreamer vibe from Mark's designs for yes. sure. Um, 
uh, more so than I get a competitive one. Yes. Um, and although I agree with you that he is competitive. Right. Uh, but it's funny because every one of his uh, – most of his games, he loves the WBC mechanism. So he designs competitive games. Yep. Uh, and that's the way he thinks about it. He loves that whole WBC thing. And as we were talking about at lunch, the, a, a small minority of the universe of gamers actually has have any idea what WBC is, right? Or right? or, or would 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 think about like playing in a board game tournament, right? As something that they would want to do, right? Um, but uh, I think that you know, I, th- I think that is a large. I think that's a non-trivial reason why we bias ourselves towards the idea that our games have to have one winner, right? Right. I mean, not just that, of course, because like you know, we watch sports and stuff, and in a football game, there's one winner, right? right. But uh, you know, I mean, or at least the rules are really trying to generate a single winner, right? Um, but uh, but I think I think if we relax, uh, if we relax and back off, back away from that some. I think there are some historical situations, and coin is kind of just the beginning. I think there are some mm-hmm. historical situations that can be gamed in a way that's really interesting for people, as well as much more accessibly. Right. No, I, I think that, from a historical perspective, that starts with this question, which has always been the question that I carry with me, and that is, who are the people at the table? And, and it's never two. <laughs> it's never two people. Right. It's, ne- it's never France and England. That that may be the best way to model the game, right? Right, right. And, and and rightfully so. But there are a lot of other factions involved, and even factions within England and France. And yep. so the complexity is really, you know, we we abstract everything. That's the nature of a game. But the complexity of all these games is tremendous if we'll just get, allow ourselves to set step back and and ponder that. Um, yeah, I mean, for my own part, I'm personally very much a dreamer. Um, mm-hmm. I fall pretty strongly in that camp, and and I think in some you know that helps has helped design and and has hurt design in some ways. But like, I mean, Twilight Struggle is a dreamer design, mm-hmm. right? Uh, <laughs> it's very much a dreamer design, right. um, where we uh, we were so focused on the Cold War mentality and on on figuring out ways that the players could find themselves in that mentality, um, and. Uh, I think Imperial Struggle is also uh, very much the product of a dreamer. Right. Um, you know, the f- the f- the feeling of of like wanting to 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 show, you know, wanting to have four wars in the game uh, and still have it be a short game, right. wanting it, wanting the players to to feel like they are driving the destiny of a great nation and uh, a nation that can. De- that you know where the stakes are to define the modern age, right? Like those are, those are you know those are the sort of emotions that I hope the game evokes. Right. Um, and you know, do I hope that it is a competitively solid game that people enjoy playing over and over and, and mastering? Absolutely, absolutely. Sure. I hope that. But, uh, but and, and and were design decisions made to to facilitate that? Certainly, certainly. Um, but. At its heart, yeah, the desire, you know, my desire and Jason's desire when making Imperial Struggle was about, I think, those feelings, you right. know, the feeling of, of, you know, the 18th century being a, a gateway to the modern age and who is going to, who is going to open the door. Right. Right. That's terrific. Well, that's, uh, that's a perfect place for us to leave it. I appreciate you coming to San Diego and taking the time to talk about this stuff. Always, uh, always interesting. My so. pleasure, and I'll be here for the historical games con. Excellent. So we'll see you. Uh, 
month and a half. Month and a half. Take Thanks. care, Harold. Thank Bye. you so much. Do you want to tell me what you had for breakfast? I had grape nuts and milk and honey for breakfast and green tea. Grape nuts, milk, and honey. Wow. <laughs> and then what about lunch? Uh, I had Mendocino Farms uh, not fried chicken. How was the not fried chicken, by the way? That was pretty pretty good. Pretty I, was, uh, I was pretty impressed. Yeah, yeah. good. good. This, a friend of mine that works for uh, public radio in San Diego that does a lot of remote recordings said that the first thing you do is you ask them what they had for breakfast and you use that to set your sound level so that's the, that's the trick I it's assumed not, it had to be not much of a trick